Well, I think we could be in some kind of a golden era of space exploration. The greatest events in human space exploration have not happened yet. And I want to stick around as long as I can to help make those really great ones still happen. If you ask me, the greatest words in science are, well, now that was unexpected. That is when real learning begins. And I think by virtue of what we're doing, this program, we are going to enable that sort of thing to happen. And you're going to see just a, an acceleration in science and space once we start getting the actual scientists up there with their own experiment. You're listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast featuring interviews and stories, tapping into project experiences in order to unravel lessons learned, identify best practices, and discover novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. NASA's Commercial Crew Program works with American aerospace industry partners as companies develop and operate a new generation of spacecraft and launch systems capable of carrying crew to low Earth orbit and the International Space Station. John Cowart is a veteran space engineer who most recently served as Deputy Manager for the Commercial Crew Program's Mission Management and Integration Office. John, thank you for taking time to talk with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. This this is going to be fun. I like talking about this stuff. So what's going on these days with Commercial Crew? Well, an awful lot, as you can imagine. Uh, you may recall that we just recently flew the demonstration flight one. And so now we are getting ready for demonstration flight two. We're also getting ready for the Boeing side of this, which will be the orbital flight test and crewed flight test. So to get ready for all those things, we are still doing hardware build. Uh, we're doing hardware testing and qualification. The same thing goes with uh, software. Uh, we're reviewing all the paper that's got to get done. And, and, you know, nothing is complete these days without the paper being reviewed, although the paper tends to be a lot more electronic these days. Uh, we're doing uh, operation simulations, launch and, and in-flight stuff, uh, practicing when things go well, when things don't go well, uh, how we're going to work together as a team with both Boeing and SpaceX and, and even amongst ourselves, uh, just within NASA, how we're going to deal with things that happen. We're reviewing uh, the hazards. Uh, when you when you build spacecraft, one thing you go do is you look at every possible hazard and how you can mitigate them. So we're ticking down through all of those things and getting ready to really fly people. We're going to put astronauts on these things. And uh, that's really important. And then in the immediate future, uh, just beyond all the hardware stuff, we're going to do a couple of abort tests. Boeing and SpaceX are both going to do abort tests coming up in the next few months. So bottom line is, uh, you name it, it's going on right now. Commercial crew has represented a departure from NASA's traditional approach to human spaceflight. Let's take a step back and talk about how this all got started. Oh, well, way back in uh, uh, 2009, somewhere in that general area, it, it started with, with seed money for something called, in what we have are called Space Act Agreements. And, and it really began over on uh, the ISS, International Space Station. Uh, they wanted to get commercial resupply services. So they started looking at, at a couple of companies to bring uh, supplies up to the space station, not people, but just the supplies that they would need. And so they, they let the commercial resupply services or CRS contract. Um, that is, is really the genesis. And then someone said, Hey, wait a minute. Well, if you can do that with cargo, maybe, maybe we can go do this with uh, the astronauts as well. And at the same time, we were talking about how we were going to ramp down shuttle and, and how we were going to start bringing up the constellation program. Uh, this is all prior to 2010. And then, once Constellation went away, I said, okay, let's, 
now that we we've got this seed money, let's let's get a little more serious about this flying crew up to the International Space Station. And so through a series of contracts, starting with with I'm going to use the acronyms and don't want to go into explaining, but just so that we have a reference point, we call them CC Dev One, CC Dev Two, because those were development contracts and and actually happened under a Space Act agreement. But now we're down to the real contracts where uh, uh, we are actually building hardware and going to go fly people. So it, it's it, it started way back then, and and the amazing thing is how much it parallels. If you go back and look at your history. The, this whole development thing, how it parallels the early days of aviation when in the original days, in the early 1900s, the U.S. government was flying your mail around. Any air mail was carried by a U.S. government airplane. And finally, the U.S. government said, hey, maybe we can farm some of this out to private sector companies. And they did. And over time, those companies got very good at flying airplanes, flying very programmed routes. And that blossomed into the aviation industry that you see today with an unparalleled safety record. So we're hoping that what you see here right now in space will blossom into the same thing that you see with our airline industry that we have in this country. What are some of the challenges that the commercial crew program has faced? Oh, well, of course, there are always going to be the technical ones. Um, you almost, with, with spaceflight hardware, you have to design close to the margins of where your equipment is going to operate because you can't afford any excess weight. Uh, so you're going to stay very, very close to your margins. Uh, new rocket engines are having to be developed uh, for, for both uh, the, the abort engines that fly on both Dragon and on the Starliner. Uh, we're looking at parachutes. You have to the whole thing with parachutes, I thought parachutes before I got into this program was a pretty well understood thing, but the dynamics of what goes on with parachutes is really incredible. And the amount of work you have to do to certify parachutes has been mind boggling to me. In fact, um, we don't even call them parachutes anymore. We call them trailing deployable aerodynamic decelerators. And, and I guess you really can't be a government program until you got a cool acronym like that. So uh, that we call that TDAD. And another thing that, that's been a bit of a challenge for us is the mindset of NASA folks that have been involved. In prior programs, we were very prescriptive about what we wanted. We laid out in the contract exactly how big the box had to be, how much it was going to weigh, what finish was on it, all those sorts of things. Nowadays, we are, we are trying to unleash the power of the private sector to go be more efficient. So we don't say so much exactly what the box has to look like, how much it has to weigh. We say, well, you're going to have a whole bunch of boxes and they're going to need to fit into an area that does this sort of thing. So you guys go develop that the way you want. All we care about is that in the end, it will meet the requirement of how that whole suite of boxes have to perform in whatever they're doing. So all of that, uh, that's been a challenge. And, and also now because we don't own the spacecraft and we don't own the rockets, we have to be much more aware of the proprietary information that we're dealing with from both SpaceX, Boeing, and, and ULA as well. They, they are in a bit of a competition, so we have to make sure that we keep the data separate. We can't let Boeing see SpaceX data and vice versa. And that's a, that's a new thing to us. We've, we've not had to, to deal with that kind of an environment here in the human spaceflight. Uh, part of NASA ever before. So it's kind of cool. Was there also a, somewhat of an adjustment phase for you as as you walked through these changes and doing things in a different way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, nothing nothing happens overnight. You do not turn uh, the, the, the great ship of NASA on a dime. Uh, getting people to, to come along and understand, yeah, this is a new way of doing business has been pretty tough. 
uh, I, I would say we, we are still making that turn. We've come a long way, but we're, we're not all the way there yet. So like I say, and, and you were saying it, it is a challenge and, and one I think we're all up to and, and we've made it this far and we're going to keep working through it and, and get to the end on this thing and fly some folks up to the space station. As you've dealt with some of these challenges, how would you characterize the value of lessons learned? Lessons learned in any program are, are incredibly valuable. Um, and, and by the way, by any other name, lessons learned are called experience. And, and what you do with, with lessons learned is you, you want to take your experience and, and somehow codify it and, and make it so that other people, it's not just tribal information, that it's somewhere it's written down, somewhere somebody can go reference and, and, and see exactly what your lessons learned were. Um, we learned a lot from the shuttle. And when the shuttle folks came on, they learned a lot from the Apollo folks. Everything builds on top of your previous experience. Um, but And then a lot of folks come in and they say, well, you know, that's how you did it in that other program, but I think we can do it better. And that's good, uh, but you don't want them to make, the, the, the cardinal sin is to make the same mistake twice. And so we're hoping with lessons learned, that's the biggest thing is stop that kind of a thing from happening. Don't don't be dumb in the same way twice. Find a whole new way to be dumb. Uh, but we're working, working hard on that. As you know, SpaceX has a, uh, rather Boeing, has a ton of experience over the long run. They've been doing human spaceflight for a, a long time now. SpaceX has not, but SpaceX has ramped up quickly because even though they've been doing it for less time, their activity has been much more intense. So we get, we get a different feel from each of our providers that we're working with, and, uh, and we're getting to a really good place with both of them where I, within the next year, I am certain we're going to be flying crews up to the International Space Station. And then what are some of the long-term goals of commercial crew? Well, first and most importantly is to be able to take our crews up to the ISS routinely. We, we want it to be uh, a, a very almost turnkey kind of task or say, hey, we need another crew up there. You've got the experience now. We're going we're gonna to turn you loose to go do that with some amount of oversight because it, they are our astronauts that are flying on these things. But that's the, that is the real long-term goal and, and the, the one we had our sights set on when we started this thing way back in the early 20-teens. Beyond that, uh, another long-term goal is to enable and empower the private sector to build and operate their own facilities in space and then fly, you know, for lack of a better term, normal people like you and I up into space. What, what we really hope is possible is that, that they can build their own space station up there and then they can market this capability that we've helped them to develop. You know, you guys now can take NASA astronauts up to the space station. If you want to try to market that to universities, to tourists, uh, to folks from other countries who want to come and fly up to your space station and either do tourism or, or go up and do experiments. Uh, if you ask me, the greatest words in science are, well, no, that was unexpected. Because if you can, the way the situation works now is if you are a scientist and you want something, uh, an experiment to be done up in space, you get it already, you put it into a nice, neat little package that should operate practically autonomously. You give that to an astronaut, you train that astronaut on how to go run your experiment. That astronaut gets up in space, runs the experiment. If something goes wrong with it, it doesn't operate flawlessly, that astronaut has to stop, somehow contact you, you got to talk about it. It'll be so much better when the person who actually knows completely what's going on with that experiment, who thought about it thoroughly, is up there with their experiment, and something goes wrong and goes, now that's unexpected. That is when real learning begins. And I think by virtue of what we're doing, 
this program, we are going to enable that sort of thing to happen. And you're going to see just a, an acceleration in science and space once we start getting the actual scientists up there with their own experiments. When we talk about NASA's future, there is so much excitement now as America gears up for Artemis and the mission to send the first woman and the next man to the moon. What are your thoughts about going to the moon in 2024? <laughs> as someone who watched the very first uh, Apollo 11 when that happened, um, I am very excited. I am ready to go back to the moon. But this is, as, as everybody fully understands, it is still a tough goal. That's why we haven't done it since 1972. It's still not easy. It's going to take a lot of work. Now, all of this that, that we've got to go do to make the future happen is intertwined. I, I know people tend to think of, of when they go and study history, they think of it as, and that's the way it's kind of taught, is this very linear thing where events bubble up straight up to, you know, from when this happened right here, then all of a sudden we had televisions or we had radio. They, they see it in that kind of a linear relationship. That is exceptionally not true. What happens is someone makes a discovery in one area, someone makes something in another, somehow they combine, somebody hears something, some other little piece of the puzzle falls in place. It's really much more of a puzzle than a stovepipe. Uh, one of the best examples of all time is we can go to the moon or we can go out beyond Pluto because there was a doctor in Apalachicola, Florida in 1850 who was trying to find a cure for malaria. And what he did was he said, well, I think malaria is caused by hot, mucky air. So he kind of invented air conditioning. And the process that we use to run your air conditioner is the direct descendant of the process we use to make liquid hydrogen, which powers our rockets. That's not linear at all. Uh, that process has been used across many, many things. So we're getting excited because getting to the moon, while it may look straightforward to us right now, it might not be. We may be using a hybrid of government assets and private sector assets. I love the possibilities. It, this, is, this is just, like I said, incredibly exciting. I tell people, I think we could be in some kind of a golden era of space exploration. When, when you look at all the things that are going on that have happened recently and what's coming up, I mean, I, I don't know how you know when you're in a golden era, when you're actually going through it. But, but to me, it seems to have some of the signs that we've got probes going out you know, past Pluto. We, we just got done with Cassini. We're sending more probes out to, to look at Europa. There might be life under the ice uh, of one of those moons out there on Jupiter and Saturn. We, we just got uh, done with Kepler. Now we have tests up there. I mean, when I was a kid, we only knew of nine planets. Then that went down to eight for a little while. But now we're up to, to 4,000 planets. So the it's just an incredible time and, and the future of human spaceflight with us uh, doing the commercial crew thing and then hopefully enabling the private sector to take people up to a space station that they would build. Holy cow. What a great time. I, I can't imagine a better time. Oh, but I do know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. The greatest events in human space exploration have not happened yet. And I want to stick around as long as I can to help make those really great ones still happen. Did you always love space? Well, now that is a bit of a story. I, I didn't always love it, obviously, like I do now. Uh, when I was very young, this is back in the 1960s, I didn't really like the space program because uh, in those days, there were only three networks. And if you're a little kid and you wanted to watch cartoons, the only time cartoons came on was between 8 a.m. and noon on Saturday morning. And I'll be darned, it seemed to me as if NASA was always launching on a Saturday morning. And back in the 60s, each rocket launch was a big deal and they were always carried live on the network. So whenever NASA launched, 
I didn't get to see my cartoons. I didn't like NASA. But then uh, Christmas Eve of 1968, uh, little, little John is laying in bed trying to go to sleep because it, it is Christmas Eve and Santa will not come until you are asleep. And so I'm laying there trying to go to sleep. My mom sticks her head in the door and says, John, are you awake? And I said, no, I am, yes. She said, well, I want you to see something. So she took me outside and, and went out on the, the back porch of my, my little house there in Tucker, Georgia, where I grew up. And, and she's pointed at the moon, which is just coming up above the, the pine trees there. And she said, there are people from the planet Earth, three people going around the moon right now. And that really captured my attention. And we came back inside and my dad was adjusting the rabbit ears on the TV. And we listened to, to the Apollo 8 crew uh, recite from Genesis and show us the Earth from the moon. And that really ignited my, uh, my interest. And from that point on, I was pretty sure I wanted to work in the space business. Now, the, I haven't gotten to do the, the ultimate thing, which is strap the rocket on my back and go up there. But I've done everything but that. I've had a great career and, and I love space now. I understand that on a personal level, you're in a period of transition, retiring from NASA after 35 years and shifting into a new opportunity to continue supporting human spaceflight, but on the private side. Right. As you reflect on your NASA career, what are some of the experiences that stand out? The things that, that, that I carry heaviest in my heart are uh, the events. I saw both Challenger happen and, uh, and I was here at the, the Cape when Columbia happened. So those weigh in on my memory on, on one side of it. But on the, on the, on the much better side is uh, I have gotten to work in every human spaceflight program we've had uh, since 1983. So that's ISS, that's Constellation, that's Shuttle, uh, all those things. I, I've gotten to be a part of those and, and help try to make those things happen and make them better. Um, I have uh, <laughs> gotten to meet uh, all six of the original seven astronauts. I met Neil Armstrong a few times. And, and when you meet people that, that you practically you know worshipped as a kid, they were certainly your heroes. It certainly has an effect on you. I, I remember all the people that I've worked with. Um, all of them have contributed something to make me a better engineer or person. And uh, I, I'm so glad that I got to go do this. I'm glad I'm not getting out of human spaceflight. The, the, my next job will still be uh, helping NASA out, though not with a NASA badge on, but still helping NASA with the human spaceflight endeavors. So um, the future is looking really good, and I'm glad I'm not getting out of the business just yet. You have spent a lot of time in the firing room, so I'd like to hear some of your experiences related to actual launches. Could you talk us through some of the experiences that you've had related to human spaceflight launch? Oh, it's it's really cool. Now, I will, I will tell you, there, there's, uh, there's two sides to this story. The first is, uh, if you get a chance to be in a firing room on a launch day, take it. I, you'll, you'll love it. It's an amazing experience because you, you, you'll be in a room full of people, all of you very much dedicated to whatever the data is you are committed to reviewing to make that launch safe. You're looking, if you're, if you're an environmental control engineer, you're looking at certain parameters. If you're a software engineer, you're looking at other stuff. If you're an electrical engineer, you got power, all these people. And so when you're in the firing room, uh, you look out and you see all these people very intensely focused on what, on what their piece of the pie is in order to make sure this launch is very, very safe and happens correctly. Um, there's not a whole lot of talking. Uh, you, you, you've got things to go do. You're very, very busy. On the other hand, if 
when you go to see a launch, it is much, much better to see it outside where you can feel it. Uh, when you're in the firing room, it's a very antiseptic experience in the sense that you will not see the launch because uh, generally speaking, the, the pad is not in, in your view. Uh, you won't feel it or hear it like you do uh, when you're outside. So, and like I said, you're focused on the work you're doing, but when you're outside and that, that vehicle goes up and you, and you hear the crackling of the rocket, um, and especially on the shuttle or even for folks who are around back during the Saturn five days, you look at that and you, and you feel the power. You can feel it actually pounding on your chest as you're, as you're standing there and you can feel the ground trembling just a little bit under this incredible noise. And, and you go, wow, there are people brave enough to sit on top of that and ride that thing. And, and it just provides you another level of awe when you watch it. But the, but the firing room, Firing rooms nowadays are very different than uh, than when I was working there. Like I said, it's very antiseptic. You were in it behind a metal cabinet with a hard vinyl floor. Uh, nowadays, I go in the firing room and there's carpet and there's oak paneling, and it looks it's so much softer and nicer than it was back in the day. So I don't know. I, I think I think the this new generation of people launching, uh, I look, I go, oh, they're very soft. They don't have it like we did. <laughs> John, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything we didn't get to today? Uh, I, I've said, uh, like I wanted to convey to you my, my sense of, of how important it is, uh, how important human spaceflight is to all of humanity. Uh, and, I, and I heard uh, Jeff Bezos say this the other day, essentially, uh, eventually we're going to have to leave the planet. We're going to run out of some stuff. It's just math. It's going to happen. And the one organization here in the United States that's doing that is NASA that's leading the way. We've got other folks coming along looking really good. Uh, and, I, and I wish them all the best because I know beyond a doubt that our destiny lies above us and it's time to get going. We Are Going, a video that shows how NASA is going to the moon to stay by 2024 is linked from our website. You'll also find links to more information about the commercial crew program, John's bio, and a transcript of today's show at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you have suggestions for interview topics, please let us know on Twitter at NASA Apple and use the hashtag small steps, giant leaps. Thanks for listening. <laughs>